And really, the more I did these things over and over again, the more I was assured that I am highly capable of doing almost anything. You know, all I need is time to learn and I'm ready to participate to the fullest extent. You're listening to Wellfed. I'm your host, John Sarantino, a designer based out of New York, and on each episode, I sit down to talk with one of my creative heroes, individuals whose work, style, and ideas I admire and continue to be inspired by every day. We discuss their past, present, and everything in between. Hey, before we start, I'm trying out something new this season, and I need your help. I'll be releasing episodes every Tuesday until the final episode, and I'll be keeping my fingers crossed that I can keep up. I would love to get your feedback after every release, and I'll be giving away stickers and pins to everyone that helps out as a thank you. All you have to do is leave a review on Apple Podcasts or share the podcast on social media. Take a screenshot and DM it to me on Instagram or Twitter at WellFedPodcast, and I'll send you some good old-fashioned snail mail. With that, enjoy the episode. On this episode, I'm excited to welcome uh, a good friend of mine who is a freelance writer and associate producer who has worked with companies like HuffPost, Refinery29, Blavity, Out Magazine, and is currently at Vice Media Group, Aaron Barksdale. Thank you so much for joining me. John, it's a pleasure to be here. Excited. I'm glad that while the neighborhood has changed, the apartment that I remember coming and hanging out here is still very much, very much the same. Yeah, it's good to have you back. I mean, the time that you were here before was actually for my roommate's birthday. Mm -hmm. And I was telling her, oh, John is going to come back. And she said, John? And I said, yeah, you remember John from Vice. He was here for your birthday. And she immediately remembered. It was nice. really funny. I'm glad I, I made the a, wheels connect. I'm glad I made a good impression <laughs> that time. Um, Always. So, so Aaron, I actually had uh, my parents just moved to South Carolina. Mm. And I came into contact recently with the phrase, bless your heart. You've never heard bless your heart before? I mean, I might have heard it through TV, but like in person, <laughs> it takes on a completely different context. What can you tell me a little bit about that phrase? Yeah, bless your heart. Oh, that's actually my response to hearing you never hearing that phrase before. <laughs> um, it is just the most endearing and yet condescending way. That's what I thought, right? It's a little of sarcastic. acknowledging someone in the South. Yeah, when someone says something, it's just like, oh, that's good for you. Bless your heart. You know, it's that type of. Um, sincere but also lacking sincerity uh regard for somebody else when when you hear them say something that's kind of funny or absurd that would garner pity in any other situation it's low-key shade i think that they probably said that on real housewives of atlanta multiple times most likely being directed from phaedra to another <laughs> cast member on the show just bless your heart you this is something that you might have heard growing up because you're also from the south correct i would say that i am but also not necessarily the south 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 of new york new jersey yeah exactly i mean i grew up in springfield virginia which is only um 20 minutes outside of dc Mm. so i always had a really strong connection to the city and urban life even though i grew up technically in the suburbs it's really funny whenever people ask me where i'm from i'm always like uh do I tell them Virginia or do I tell them D.C.? If I say Virginia, it sounds like I'm really from the South. But if I say D.C., they, 
makes them think that I have a little bit more flavor. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't, I didn't really feel like I grew up in the South, even though I went to a high school named Robert E. Lee. Uh, nice. Yes, it's, it's very typical to go to a school named after a Confederate general when you live below the Mason-Dixon line. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I didn't feel like the South. No one had an accent. I'll say that. Yeah, I never noticed any sort of accent when you know when I first met you or anything like that. So <laughs> it was a surprise to me. Right. But it's also to your point. It's not like Virginia. It's like the central area before yes. you get further down. It's very mid Atlantic. I kind of would group Northern Virginia, D.C., Maryland, and Delaware, and probably even Pennsylvania, all in that same grouping of regional accents. And cultural identity. I think as you start moving further and further south in Virginia, then you definitely see some of those genteel, antebellum, southern yep. qualities. Southern bells. Right, exactly. I think that Richmond, which is in the center of the state and it's also uh, the state capital, is kind of where it becomes a little bit more south. You'll see people walking around in cowboy boots, mm-hmm. and it's not to be ironic, it's to be stylish. And when I went to undergrad actually that was the first time that i was really deep in what would be considered virginia south i was going to school at william and mary in williamsburg virginia and there's kids coming from all areas of the state because it's a state school Mm -hmm. it's very popular in virginia um to apply to so that was the first time where i felt like i was around real southern people um, people with accents, people with cowboy boots and things of that nature. So it was really funny. It was, it's, yeah, it's interesting to kind of like think about my hometown in that regard. You went to, as you mentioned, William and Mary and you got your BA in English and literature. Mm-hmm. Um, was that always the plan? Like we you know, going through high school and going through like middle school, were you creatively writing or where did that kind of, you know? Yeah. I mean, from? I think that when I was younger, that's always where my confidence came from. I was not the most skilled in terms of athletics and I think typical boy activities like sports and things of that nature. I always excelled in academia and school. So for me, writing was just something that came almost effortlessly and naturally. And I've always been the type of person who is extremely creative and likes to use my hands and making things or my imagination when writing things. And I knew when I was going into the college application process in high school that I wanted to be a writer in some capacity or I wanted to get involved in publishing in some capacity. But I didn't have a real concrete idea of all the ways that that could look like. I mean, none of the career fields that exist now were as established when I was growing up and when I was in those kind of formative years. So to answer your question, I I wanted to be a writer, but I thought that I would be something like a novelist. Mm -hmm. What were you writing? (laughs) Like, what were the things that you were writing about as a kid? Oh, man, I would journal a lot when I was in elementary school and middle school. And my mom still has some of the little notebooks and and letters. Right, exactly. I think that if I went back now, I'd probably be mortified by some of the things I was writing. I remember as early as five and six years old, I would watch movies, Disney movies in particular, and I would rewrite the story on our little 
computer. It was this really <laughs> ancient looking uh, typewriter machine. And I remember looking back now, it's so, so old in comparison to today's technology, but it was just a, a little word processor. And I would rewrite the movies that I would see and change the characters' names to people in my family. So, <laughs> so like, the rescuers would be retold um, with, like, Aaron as the main character instead of Penny. <laughs> and, like, the mice would be, like, named after my friends or my siblings or uh, other family members. And it was really, really an act of creativity. I could already see the beginnings of my interest in writing and telling stories from a really young age. And then by the time I got into high school, I was, you know, writing some creative poetry. I was um, mainly doing academic papers for my IB classes. I was always in advanced courses, especially in literature and language arts. Those were like the areas that I excelled in the most. Um, And then on the other hand, I was also very artistic Growing up, I loved drawing, and it was something that was incredibly important to me. So I would have notebooks on notebooks that were just filled with sketches and drawings of cartoon characters or things that I saw in magazines or on TV and the movies, and also just notebooks filled with collages. I would get these magazines, like cut them up, and then paste them and create these collages. My mom still, once again, has these <laughs> notebooks with all this paraphernalia of the things that I created when I was younger. And when I got to college, I was quite confident that I was going to be an English major. And I was um, interested in taking some art classes, but I don't think I took an art class possibly until my mm, either second semester of my freshman year or my first semester of my sophomore year um partly because I had to take a creative class in order to check off one of the general education requirements that we had for our school and um I remember my first English course that I took one of the foundational classes was basically a class about early British literature we're talking you know, the the classics um, and writing academic papers based on that. And I thought at that time that I would be able to do exceedingly well because I've always done well in school. And I remember getting like my first C on a paper and thinking, this is not okay. <laughs> I, 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 was, I was completely rattled. And it was weird because, you know, I'm expecting to do super well, but I'm also like analyzing this 16th century poem before like novels and and traditional books as we think about them today were even invented so this analyzing of classic literature was kind of mind-boggling to me so i'm jumping through hoops to try and once again convince myself that i can do this thing and even when facing difficulty you know there's a way to kind of work around it um it was just really, it was really challenging. You also, yeah. you you minored in art history. Yes, yes. I minored in both art and art history. During my time at Wayman Mary, I took a lot of painting classes, a lot of printmaking classes. Actually, some of the artwork that's in my room right mm-hmm. now is from classmates of mine and also some of my own art uh, that I made while I was still in school. 
And I realized the order that I got, the more interested I was in creating art more so than writing. It was basically a passion of mine that I hadn't nurtured and developed fully until I got into maybe my second or third year in school. And I realized, wow, this is actually something that I'm not only enjoy, but I'm enjoying the process of making even more so than having the final result in front of me. And I really connected to my professors in the art studio. Um, They were more like mentors to me and advocates for me and the type of leadership and, and, and relationship that you would want to have with an adult who sees the talent in you and the potential in you and wants you to work harder at getting that refined. So yeah, I basically put most of my energy into painting and printmaking, um, working with oil paints and acrylics. And that in turn kind of developed my interest toward grad school um, when I graduated from William & Mary once again the digital media industry was kind of just becoming a thing. I remember, you know, going on the internet, mainly Facebook, which was popular more, I think more popular then at the time, even than it is now. Um, And seeing articles from places like Buzzfeed, Vice, Huffington Post, um, Slate, these kind of early foundations of what the digital media industry is now were just starting to bud. And um, there was not a lot of preparation from our university uh, and working in that arena. Um, It's also because you were like, I mean, you were sort of going, it seemed like you were going from creative writing with this idea of being a novelist and publishing and doing a book or something. And then you fell in love with this process of like making physical like drawings or prints, whatever. Exactly. And a lot of people would say there's a relationship between those two. Like people Mm -hmm. always encourage you. I remember while I was in school, they were like, do some creative writing courses, like take some because it's you're using, maybe it's like you're using a different part of your brain. um, And you're kind of the opposite, right? You were doing creative writing and then you decided that you were going to start doing making stuff. And that sort of like, again, works in that idea of like you're, you're exercising a different part of what your, your habits were before. Yeah. I mean that in of itself too is really formative because when I was taking my creative writing courses, they were all in like creating short stories. Mm -hmm. And my senior thesis was actually a novel that was very much based in like James Joyce's literature style, literary style. And so if you have ever read um, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man or Ulysses, those were like two of my favorite books. I had done a a Joyce course um, during my time at William and Mary, and that kind of influenced me and the way that I wanted to approach my senior thesis, which was like, I really want to do a creative writing piece, and I really want to kind of focus on developing a narrative style. And at the same time, I was like working on my art. You eventually make it to, you you go and pursue your master's. Right, exactly. And and you go for art education. Yeah, I mean, when I was uh, in my senior year of school, you know, everyone was telling me, what are you going to do with an English degree that basically holds no merit whatsoever unless you want to be a teacher? And I... I'll go be a teacher. <laughs> right. I was like, okay, I guess I'll be a teacher. I had applied for TFA 
um, Teach for America. And I thought that I was going to be underprepared to serve the students that I would have been teaching had I accepted the placement that they had given me, which would have been in an urban community in Chicago teaching high school English. Well, I think that TFA is a really great organization and they do incredible work in terms of placing much needed attention on developing uh, underserved communities and marginalized communities. I did not feel like there was enough of a foundational support for me to step into a program like that and be able to do a job well. I take the responsibilities of being a teacher very seriously. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the reasons why I had applied to grad school in the first place. And I was also in this time having a kind of creative renaissance within my head or within my own (laughs) personal identity. And I was thinking, I really want to pursue art. And so I decided to do the art education route. Um, I applied to Teachers College, which is the... Uh, grad school at Columbia for education, psychology, and health sciences. So for me, it was both a really good answer to adults who were asking me what I was going to do with my life after I finished college. And I just needed something to say, you know what, I'm going to be productive and on the right track. I'm going to grad school because I hadn't 100% figured out what I wanted to be when I grew up, or at that point, I guess I had been grown up, but I was also just barely 22. I I think that my birthday was maybe two or three weeks before graduation. So I was like, I think that this is the path that I'm going to take. And that's what brought me to New York. You graduate grad school. Yes, I did. And then you two do, years. you do, you start teaching afterwards for a couple months. Not entirely. So when I was in my grad program, it's a very intensive year, the first year of scholarly education, where you're learning about developmental theory, and um, you're also working on your own art practice. So you're taking art classes as well, in addition to taking classes about the history of art education and the cultural practices that go within teaching art and the developmental things that you can look for in terms of artistic development for children as they get older. It's almost as easy to track as someone's reading level. You can see where someone is developmentally because of the way that they're able to construct the world around them with the materials that they have. And the second year was 100% student teaching Mm. with some additional coursework, but it was like predominantly student teaching during the day and then a few classes in the evening. And the student teaching was one of the most difficult but rewarding experiences that I've ever had, especially as a young professional and as a young adult. Um, My first semester was spent teaching 9th through 12th graders at a uh, high school in East Harlem. Um, Shout out to the Heritage School. It was really challenging to work with students who were from a lower income community. Um, This was a predominantly black and Hispanic community. So I also felt a sense of duty in terms of representation because I was one of the few black 
uh, faculty members who was at this school. They were like the majority of the faculty was either white, a few Latinos. The cooperating teacher that I had was an interesting character. We had very different teaching philosophies. So the way that we approached the type of coursework or classwork that we would want to give to the students was also different. And it was also kind of challenging for me being so young and working with students who may have only been four years younger than me at the minimum and probably six to eight years younger than me at the max. And I was also not closeted in my personal or social circles and definitely not among my peers, but in the workplace, I was not comfortable being out in front of my students. And this was something that I thought of and and almost um, explored in my writing when I was um, working in the media industry. But that feeling of not being able to be fully transparent because of a lot of the tropes that are associated with adults who are queer and children and uh, also the like homophobia that I saw within the school itself um, and within those communities. Not that homophobia exists specifically in that community, but it was incredibly present in the ways that the kids interacted with each other, which also made me not feel safe, which is kind of ironic because I know that there were queer students in my classroom who also probably felt less safe than I did. So I wish that I could have probably created a little bit more of a inclusive environment while I was a teacher there. And um, it was a really big learning experience for me to go into that classroom and deal with those things. And then um, because in New York City, if you're applying to be a art teacher, you have to be certified K through 12. My second semester was actually spent teaching kindergarten through fourth grade. I loved that experience. It was much different community was a little bit more racially diverse in terms of the school that I was at in the Upper West Side. Shout out to PS472. And they were a more affluent community. The cooperating teacher that I had had a very similar um, teaching philosophy that I did and also gave me a lot more freedom in the classroom to come up with my own ideas in terms of lesson plans and materials that we would use. And it was a phenomenal experience. And I also felt like it was more inclusive in terms of gender and sexual orientation. The principal at that school, I believe, (laughs) was queer. Um, And the environment that the other teachers had fostered was also um, inclusive of queer identities as well. There was like this really sweet um, book in our classroom called King Meets King, which was just about a prince who's on his way to becoming a king, but in order to become a king, he needs to marry someone. And so like all these different princesses from different countries end up coming and they're all beautiful, but none of them strikes their t- his attention except uh, one princess who brings her brother along and then they like get together. <laughs> um, and it's like King and King. It was a really sweet book. And there was also like, I think another book about penguins that was also in the classroom. So the like space that that teacher that I was working with had created an environment where I think it was okay for students to bring them their whole selves into the classroom. And that was really cool. You're in New York at the time and you know, you're coming out of the teacher program. Right. What, how do you get into the media industry? Like how do you start writing again? Because it sounds like you had two experiences on the opposite sides of each other while teaching. Yeah. So 
I mean, there were a lot of social movements that were happening at that time. There was the uh, Black Lives Matter social movement that was going on following the death of Mike Brown um, in Ferguson, Missouri, as well as in New York City, where I felt even more personally impacted by the death of Eric Garner. And I was also thinking about the death of Trayvon Martin, um, which I believe happened in 2013. So it was very difficult for me to witness all of the social upheavals that were happening around me and not necessarily being able to have a voice in responding to it, especially since a lot of the communities that I was serving as a teacher were being affected by this, especially while I was working in the high school setting and the majority of my students were black and brown and I knew that the potential for them or even myself as a black man to encounter the police in a situation that could end up in a not so favorable scenario um, was highly probable. And so I was really invested in talking about social identity, community, cultural uh, issues that affected black people and also intersected with other identities in terms of class, race, gender, sexual orientation, um, immigration status. There were so many things that I felt a strong desire to talk about. And I had returned to writing while I was still a student at Columbia. I was doing um, the student newspaper that had started maybe my second year at at the college, um, at Teachers College. And I had a friend from undergrad who was working at HuffPost at the time, and I was also doing a internship at an LGBTQ nonprofit here in the city um, that linked up LGBTQ teens with adults who were queer and working professionals. Um, They would bring the working professionals to the high schools around New York City and basically talk to the kids about how their lives changed after they graduated from high school and how they were able to live their best life and be their true identity as adults in the workplace. And I had connected with one person who was a part of this mentorship group with these students who also worked at Huffington Post as well. So when I was about to graduate, I reached out to my old classmate from William & Mary, and I told him that I was interested in doing the fellowship program at Huffington Post, um, which still is and at the time was doing a lot of culturally responsive journalism that really tackled issues that I thought were being overlooked at some other media companies at the time, high profile media companies at the time that weren't necessarily looking at identity as a place to analyze the current political and social climate that we were in. And um, I applied for the program and I believe that the two recommendations of both my former classmate and this connection that I had through my internship um, were the things that probably put me over the edge in terms of the application process. But when I got the position, I was so excited. I was a fellow specifically working on Black voices. And I also was really working at a digital media company for the first time. And I had a very low level of experience when it came to journalism and 
I was walking into the office every day with a sense of imposter syndrome. Like, do I really belong here? Can I make it? I remember getting back my first story that I had written and um, thinking, oh my God, this is going to be the most challenging thing that I've ever had to do because at that time when they would give back corrections on articles, like the editor, you would send your draft to the editor, the editor would give you back notes and the notes would be like in capital letters marked in red, like they were always sent back and forth via email. So it really felt like someone was shouting at you and you did something (laughs) incredibly wrong. I was so humble. I was so humble throughout that entire experience because I was like, all right, I'm here to learn and soak up every single experience and everything that I can learn from any individual, from like the person who is another fellow like me, the interns, um, any editors, social media editors, video editors, like I'm here to basically soak up all the opportunities and, and learn as much as I can. And I wrote for not just Black Voices, but the HuffPost Media site, um, the Latino Voices, Gay Voices, which eventually became Queer Voices in order to become more inclusive, HuffPost uh, entertainment. So I was able to kind of get a hand in covering a lot of different types of stories, but like always primarily sticking with things that were in my beat, which were, which was racial identity and also uh, queer identity too. I look at it as, you know, you saw the opportunity to, to make a difference in a, in a way that you thought could reach more people, right? Like you went from teaching and feeling really empowered to, to do that, to help the community out. And then I think, having the the vision or the idea that writing is another way of doing that as well. On a lighter note, HuffPost was bought by AOL. Mm-hmm. And your screen name when you were younger was Marine Wildcat. 22. Oh, yeah. That was so bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> um, I found that on your on your Instagram. But oh, you, gosh. you end up continuing down being a writer. <laughs> and you write for a number of magazines. So I'm going to hop around here a little bit. But mm-hmm. you eventually make your way to Refinery29. Yeah. So when I got to uh, the end of my fellowship, maybe about a month or so before, I was told by the editors that there basically just wasn't enough of a budget to keep me around. So at the end of my fellowship, which was a six months, June to December, I would no longer be at the company. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, I failed. I was trying to get secured employment from this and it's not going to happen. And I was really racking my brain about, all right, what's going to be the next step in my career? Do I go back to teaching where I already have a degree and I already have professional contacts? Or do I go with this thing that I feel is going to be my real passion in life and continue on the media industry? So I actually had applied to work as a substitute teacher and I was going to be working at LaGuardia Art School uh, for the performing arts rather. Um, which is like a famous performing arts and visual arts school here in New York City. It's where Nicki Minaj went. It's where I think Jennifer Aniston is another alum of the high school. And, you know, this is a school that's known for breeding the people who are going to be the uh, entertainers of tomorrow. And it's one of like the dream schools for any creative teacher to work at in the city. And so I was going through the process of getting my sub license to work there. And at the same time, a friend of mine who was working at HuffPost had told me about an opening at her media company called Odyssey. And I was weighing the two options back and forth. I was doing the interviews with the school. And then I was also doing the interviews with Odyssey. And it came together just so quickly 
the interviews with Odyssey. I had gotten interviewed by HR after I had submitted like an, a paper application. And then I had a um, meeting with two assistant managing editors and a managing editor at this media company. And so I was thinking to myself, you know what? I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to go down this path of becoming a assistant managing editor at Odyssey and leave behind my work as a teacher. And I told the staff at LaGuardia, you know, thank you so much for this opportunity, but I feel like I'm going to pass and do this other thing instead. And that was like a huge leap of faith. And at that time, I was not necessarily just an editor at this company. I was more of a... uh, I hate to say it, but it felt very much like a recruitment person rather than an editor for content. So I wasn't actually writing or publishing my own content on the site, which led me to seek out other opportunities to publish my content as a freelance writer on other websites. Um, I had a really good friend who was an editor for HuffPost Women that eventually went to Refinery29. Shout out to Rebecca Adams. And I was talking to her actually at a former co-worker's birthday party about my interest in, in writing and um, not just editing or doing this recruitment work that I was doing for this um, startup digital media company. And she said, well, you know, send me some pitches for a refinery and we can see what whether or not it works out. And I will say, this is kind of funny, but some of the best networking experiences that I've ever had have been at birthday parties. <laughs> Whenever your coworkers are throwing a birthday party, you should always go because you'll never know who you're going to have a conversation with who can possibly open up a door for another opportunity. And that comes from a person who is like a, a waffler when it comes to being social. I think that sometimes I'm incredibly outgoing. And then other times I literally just want to retreat into myself. <laughs> I was going to ask because you, yeah. you've written for so many places. Like I've, I've read through a bunch of your articles and mm. I was going to ask, is that a, a result of just being in the industry and, and networking within that? Or is it, you know, like you're reaching out to your friends or you're actively doing this, you know, and it sounds mm. like you're just kind of, you're meeting these people constantly in these experiences and just getting your name out there. Yeah, I mean, so much of it comes from being well-connected within the industry itself. I always say you never know who's going to be the next person to give you your next opportunity, which is one reason why you should treat everyone well and also work really hard and be respectful to whoever you come in contact with. And so my opportunity to work at Out, I had actually reached out to some of my um, old colleagues at HuffPost, um, when I was working at this digital media place, I was doing a lot of freelancing. And so they gave me the name of an editor who worked it out. And I said, you know, like, I have this idea for a story. And we're like, sure, send us the draft. And then from there on, they ended up publishing it. I had had um, other outlets, like, pick up my stories that had been published in other places. Sometimes a lot of digital media sites will say, like, oh, this is a really great story from Huffington Post. We want to reshare it with our audience on The Daily Dot. That's how I get a piece published there about gay men being more supportive of feminism. The refinery story that I had originally was about interracial dating and just talking about my experiences Mm -hmm. with that. I wrote another story for Refinery about 
my body image and the way that I was documenting. Um, I read that one. I, I uh, really enjoyed that. Oh, uh, well, thank, thank <laughs> you. That one was really, that was a really, I think that everything that I wrote for Refinery is like deeply personal. I feel like working for that company, I was also surprised at the think space community and how people were very interested and and really authentic stories about people's personal lives. And it also was one of the, it was some of the content that I'm most proud that I published, but also some of the, like, the most emotionally draining content that I had ever written because I was talking about my own personal experiences mm-hmm. and you really do open yourself up to criticism based on those things. Um, sometimes valid criticism and other times criticism that just seems to come out of left field. And then at Blavity, I had um, a good friend of mine who had worked at the digital media startup where I was at. And my gosh, that was a really interesting time. Um, but when when we both left, he was a managing editor at Blavity. And he told me that they were looking for um, writers to do different stories. So I was really writing about the intersection of pop culture and racial identity. I wrote a story about Rob Kardashian and Black China, and I wrote a story about Frank Ocean, and I wrote a story about a friend of mine who's a photographer who um, created this one photo book um, dedicated to uh, celebrating Black male bodies, and then also another uh, story about just celebrating queer identity um, in general um, for queer POC people. And then eventually I wrote that piece for Out, and um, at this point, I had quit my job at this digital media startup because it was not a good fit <laughs> for a variety of reasons. And I was struggling. I was working at a uh, restaurant down the street in Bushwick. I, I was uh, freelancing my writing, um, but I wasn't making a lot of money off of it. So that was one of the reasons why I had to work at the restaurant. And it was really... It was really awkward for me because there were so many people who worked um, at HuffPost and like some of the other companies that I had written for who would come into this restaurant all the time. And when they would see me, they'd be like, oh, like, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm working. (laughs) It was also very humbling as like this person with two degrees, one of which is from an Ivy League university to just like be asking people, you know, like, do you want... um, plasticware with your order and or you know things like that or let me explain the menu to you it does and you know there's no type of work that is to be shamed or to be embarrassed about uh but it was definitely a humbling experience for me and i was considering whether or not to go back to teaching um whether right right back again i was like oh do i go back to this degree or do i like really try and follow and, and pursue this passion and at the time, my roommate uh, was working at Vice, and she knew that I had been putting in a lot of work. It's like every day I was applying for a new job and like getting ghosted by HR teams or taking edit tests and never hearing back. And there are so many things that were happening behind the scenes that I was just like, I don't know if I'm ever going to get this break. And it was very expensive to live in New York. I was like, I don't know if I can afford this anymore. And so right when I was ready to throw in the towel 
my roommate told me about a position at Vice on the product team, um, working on the back end of the website, helping with the transition of the um, old CMS to a new CMS, which would link all of the Vice websites um, and brands under one uh, CMS publishing platform. And I was like, okay, I had a conversation with the person who would not even be my boss, but just ended up hiring me. Shout out to Nicole. <laughs> and um, maybe like a day or two later, I was told that I got accepted. And I was thinking, wow, this is insane. That that was literally <laughs> no time at all. They must be desperate for workers. So thank <laughs> God this is my opportunity. And I remember showing up on my first day thinking, wow, this is so cool. Like I'm going to be working for Vice. I was given a 30-day contract and I thought... I have to basically be the most professional, the the most sociable, the coolest, the <laughs> just the most everything in terms of superlatives that you can think of in the workplace in order to like secure a job. And thankfully, you know, I started on a team with seven people. This is where we actually met too. We met on this team. Yes, exactly. I think that you may have started, I started like after a few months you. after. Like, yeah. yeah. I, I was only supposed to be on this team for 30 days. That's surprising to hear because I yeah. definitely, I was in the company, but I was working in Viceland and um. I had switched over after a year or so. And I met you and Tita at the same time. You guys mm-hmm. were on the back table. Tita and my- I started the first day together. <laughs> yep. I mean, it was so funny. Like we liked each other up and down. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> You look cool. You're so cute. Come Yes, exactly. It was it was kind of like immediate. I mean, like Tita has that type of energy where she's literally magnetic and draws yeah. people to her. This she's is, this is so definitely, warm and definitely caring. True. And also just the most endearing person that you would want to work with. So we how, we quickly became buddies. That was long, like one of my faves. How long from the 30-day con like so it definitely got extended a few times. Yeah. So, I mean, there were seven of us who started and I think it was kind of clear in terms of work ethic and also cultural fit within the company who was kind of being primed for success. And there was also like a level of competition there because we were <laughs> all fighting for who knows how many spots. Um, thankfully, at the end of the 30-day period, the three people who they had selected to move there's to stay with the company um, were me, Tita, and another one of our coworkers. Um, he lasted for maybe about another month, but then he moved to uh, California to pursue other things. And so it was just Tita and I um, working on the product team. We were still working on the continuation of um, the the new CMS platform and merging all the other sites from their individual CMSs to this new unified platform. And at that time, I knew that you know, I liked working in the product area, but it was not my passion. It wasn't my, necessarily my background either. And so I was like, this is my opportunity to see, to like move it back into the editorial space yeah. where I really wanted to be. And it was really challenging. I had applied for a position on Tonic, at, um, which was at the time Vice's Health Vertical. And um, it, there was so much stagnation. Um, I like done emails and edit tests and submitted my resume and you were in the inside too and right even then it was so hard because i remember one day you were just like oh it's my last day and the next week going back to the other office you were like writing for another vertical i was like 
dude, Aaron, you're, you're killing this. But it's even then, it was still really hard for you. Yeah, it took several months to kind of get the wheels going. And I also was applying to other companies at the time. And I had gotten actually really far with another media company, another um, big name digital media company. And they were really putting me through the ringer in terms of the application process. There was a written application and then a phone um, interview and then an edit test. And then we want to bring you in for an interview. And then you're going to speak with this person. And then you're going to speak with that person. And then we're going to give you another edit test. That interview process was going through that, that hiring process was going through several months of, you know, not hearing from them for maybe like a week or a week and a half, and then getting like a new update about another thing that they wanted to put me through. And I knew that, they wanted me, but they weren't necessarily sure that I was like 100% the right fit because they must. Exhausting. It's it's so exhausting, but it's also like so typical of most people's experiences. Now, when you're going through the hiring process, it definitely takes at least two months before you get that email that says congratulations. You know, like we would love to extend an offer to you. So I was spoke really transparently with the person who was hiring me, and I said, "Hey, I just wanted to ask about like what the timeline looks like for a final confirmation for um, this particular job because I had been speaking to people at uh, Vice, and when one person heard about my background working at HuffPost, working on this type of content about." queer identity and black identity and social activism and things of that nature. And I had sent around my resume. They were like, we think that you would be good for this new vertical that we're launching called impact, Mm -hmm. which was supposed to be vices extended arm for advocacy and, and um, activism and the social movements that young people cared about. So I was in talks with the director of advocacy, who was also functioning as the editor in chief of this vertical and I will say my initial impression was not the best of what Vice was presenting because um, I didn't have like a lot of information about it. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, was, it was very uh, touch and go it when, was very we were, when we were there. Yeah, right, exactly. Like, we, we, need a, we need a new vertical, like, okay, let's launch it tomorrow. Right. It was literally like we're launching this vertical in a month and we need somebody who is very familiar with the company, is very familiar with the brand, who has some writing experience and who can also like run the technical aspects of the website. And I was like, okay, I got it. <laughs> That's everything I just did for literally, the last few months. Exactly. I was like literally primed for this particular role. So when I went back to the other company that I had applied to and I told them, I was like, hey, I've been given an offer for this other company, um, but I am very interested in working here as well. Just to be fully transparent, I, I wanted to know when you guys were thinking of hiring for this role that I had applied for. And they said, you know what? It's probably going to be another few weeks before we have a determination. And that's like even short selling it. It's right. like probably more like a few months. Right. And I, and they were like, and honestly, it's between you and one other candidate. And I said, okay, okay. here's an opportunity where I need to decide whether or not I'm going to go with um, the bird in the hand or the two in the bush. And I knew that my contract on the product team was running out. Um, that they were probably extended. They probably offered me a full-time role, which is actually what they did with Tita. Not to put too much of her business out there. Um, <laughs> Shout out, Tita. Yeah, I love you. But I knew that like working in the product team wasn't necessarily 
the thing that I wanted to commit myself to. It was very different from what you like have been doing for exactly. the last like few years anyway. Exactly. That would have been a complete shift in my career trajectory. It may have even made me more diverse. It would may have made me um, a better candidate for future jobs because I would have been gaining different skills related to coding, related to uh, data science, and um, possibly like change the way that I am now in terms of like my job and my career. But I decided in the long run, it would be a better decision for me to go with Vice Impact. And it was a really ambitious project. What we did in the year that I was on that team, I was very proud of. It was very um, challenging to develop an, uh, an identity for this new site, to figure out what the audience wanted, but also remaining true to what Vice's voice is and to also think of the right type of content to put out there, how we were going to present ourselves. And at this time, Vice was going through a lot of internal challenges that were being exposed publicly, um, which made the advocacy arm of the company kind of lose some credibility. Um, it eventually, I mean, you know, impact eventually condenses. Yeah. You know, it becomes more, it doesn't necessarily become more of an editorial website, but more of an outward facing initiative. Um, I knew that the time for impact was like coming to an end as, as um, we knew it and that it would evolve into something else, something different, um, not necessarily better or worse. And so I was looking for other opportunities at Vice. I knew that if I wanted to stay at the company, I would have to adapt and, and shift and learn how to do something different. And I really, at this time, was kind of confronted with staying as a writer or doing something else because I knew that writing is such a volatile position to have within the media industry um, you really do need other skill sets in order to make yourself a diverse candidate who would be attractive to other employers in the future and to also maintain like your importance within the company that you're already at so I knew that video was the future of uh, news and media the conversation of pivoting to video is happening at every media company mm -hmm. large swaths of editorial teams were getting laid off so that companies could focus on video and i was thinking okay i talked to then the head of content at vice at the time who was amazing to me um a really good mentor and i told her you know, I'm really interested in pursuing video. I think that this is um, the next phase of my career and I would love to explore that here at Vice. And so she talked to the person who was my boss um, at Vice. Um, shout out to Maggie. Maggie was incredible and, and basically showed me the ropes and is the reason why I was brought on to our short form video team. And what I started doing when I was working on the short form video team was basically making archival cut downs of old Vice um, docs and publishing them on our social platforms. So, you know, we had this backlogged immense uh, catalog of videos and documentaries that really just needed to be fine tuned and shortened to like, 
three to four minute videos mm-hmm. um, that we could air on social platforms to increase visibility around this content and also sell ads against them and make <laughs> of money. Course. I remember I remember having this moment. And I think this is exactly why I wanted to talk to you for this season. It's like I remember coming down to the second floor and you're telling me I'm thinking about getting into video. And I was like, dude, you should do it. Like you can absolutely learn, you know, how to edit. It's not that hard. And I remember you giving me updates about that. Like, yeah, I'm 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 cutting and I'm learning how to do premiere and all that stuff. You know, I think everything that you've talked about today has been a you've had to learn new skills like within a matter of like weeks, you know, like what continues to give you the confidence or the drive to like take on these new opportunities, you know, like what pushes you? I mean, I will say when I first started working on the production team, I wasn't editing content. I was basically creating scripts off of videos that had already existed and pulling the time codes and sending them to an editor. So I was creating what is called a paper edit, where it's very specific in terms of the type of video that you're asking the editor to create. So for me, it was really about thinking creatively and how do you tell a story in a condensed format? But basically, I was creating um, what I would later know to become paper edits for these videos. And the whole reason why I felt confident in it was because, you know, I'm really good at critical thinking and really good at being creative. And I was basically using those two skill sets in order to create new video content out of something that had already existed. You know, it was really easy for me to kind of look through Vice's catalog of content and say, all right, this is a good idea for this particular video in terms of telling the story for a new platform, for a new audience, condensing it, highlighting the stories that are most interesting, most entertaining. And that was really what was giving me my eye for production later on down the line. And although I would have loved to do more editing and kind of getting my hands dirty in Premiere, what I was mainly doing was working as a post producer, working on content that had already been published and reformatting it for a new platform. So I was, I've always had to deal with imposter syndrome, you know, wherever you go and you don't feel like you're 100% qualified for the job, and you wonder, you know, whether or not you actually deserve the position that you're in, it is something that I think all highly qualified people probably have encountered or dealt with at some point or another. But that level of insecurity is something that you just have to work through. I feel like if you didn't have it, being overconfident or overly confident in your abilities is more likely to lead to errors or mistakes or, you know, like a certain sense of arrogance where you're not necessarily able to connect with people. But having this small level of anxiety about whether or not you're qualified for your position, I think makes you work even harder to prove to yourself and others that, you know, you are deserving of this position, that you do work hard, that you are a quick learner, and that it is possible for you to gain new skills and work in the confines that you've been given and also outside of them to create something new. And really, the more 
I did these things over and over again, the more I was assured that I am highly capable of doing almost anything. You know, all I need is time to learn and I'm ready to participate to the fullest extent. That's how I've approached everything in life. Um, Being a quick learner, soaking up all the experiences around me, saying yes um, to every opportunity, you know, no matter how challenging, and just being the type of person to get something done. I think that, you know, I'm very self-motivated and very committed to keeping my word. You know, if I say that I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, I am going to do X, Y, and Z without any questions asked and to the best of my ability. And I don't need a lot of hand-holding. You know, you tell me where the destination is and show me the path, and, like, I will work towards that final destination. And that has always been the drive and the the work ethic that I've had. I think that it was something that was passed down to me from both my parents. They're both really hard workers, and they put a lot of investment and importance on um, bringing your all into the workplace. So that was basically how I developed the confidence. Sometimes I still struggle with whether or not I'm qualified for the positions that I'm in, asking for mobility, asking for more money, asking for title changes. Um, But if you don't have the confidence in yourself, then no one else will. You know, you always have to be your best advocate. Meeting you at Vice and and being your friend and just seeing how you've progressed over time has been, you know, really exciting to see you grow and and having all these different roles and opportunities and and also uh, and very inspiring to me as well. So um, I thank you for coming in and telling your story on on this episode. Aaron, where can more people find you and and maybe get in touch with you? Um, definitely reach out on Twitter. I'm very active. Aaron A. Barksdale. And um, find me on Vice's website. If you just search for my name, Aaron Barksdale, you'll find all the latest content that I've written and published. And then we have a new series out on Noisy, which is called Frequently Asked Questions, FAQs, where we have a Vice host speak with a celebrity guest and they also ask questions that we've collected from fans on the street. It's a really exciting series that I developed along with my colleague, Regina. Also very exciting. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, John. This has been a pleasure. This podcast is produced by me, John Sarantino, out in Jersey City, New Jersey. Editing, mixing, and music are all done by my friend Kevin Bendis in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Definitely check him out. You can find out more about WellFed and where to listen at wellfedpodcast.com or on social media at WellFedPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you soon.